Accutron Watches present. From New York City, this is the Accutron Show, a time travel through American culture with your hosts, Bill McCuddy, Scott Alexander, and David Graver. Visit AccutronWatch.com and discover the brand that has made American history with an all-new proprietary next-generation electrostatic energy movement. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. Many of us think there's something special about mechanical watches, which might be different from quartz watches or, or um, purely digital watches. There's something about heartbeats. There's something about the fact that those things are alive. person you heard at the top of the show is today's guest. He is David Rooney, writer and curator and author of the critically acclaimed book About Time, A History of Civilization in 12 Clocks. He's here for a special episode of our podcast that is dedicated to history. But first up, me, Bill McCuddy, along with culture writer Scott Alexander and editor David Graver. Why I still have to read that off a page, I have no idea. (laughs) I know them. All that and more on this very special episode of the Accutron Show. Stay tuned. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com, and discover our iconic Space View 2020 collection, recreating the stunning visual impact of the original open dial design combined with an all-new electrostatic energy movement. Time just changed again. The Accutron Space View 2020. Jim Croce put it in a bottle. Morris Day sang in front of it. There's a magazine called Time that uh, Las Vegas actually takes odds on as to who will be the person or persons of the year. And today, the Accutron Show, in honor of history uh, in this special edition, is talking about time. We're giving you the time of day. It's time for time. It's it is time for time. Man, and this guy, uh, David Rooney, does an incredible deep dive into the 12, he believes, most significant civiliza- civilization-changing clocks or timepieces. We told time in a lot of well, different ways. I, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's Spoiler like about alert. 100 clocks in this book. <laughs> like he says 12 on the cover, but it covers a lot more than, more than that. It's, it's, it's a remarkable book. I've been blown away reading it. So you've been um, spending your time reading about time. I've been, <laughs> my time is spent with time. And, you know, Where's the world's biggest clock? The world, uh, I believe, the world's biggest clock is in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, it's a. Me- I learned that Mecca? from from the book about time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it is the, in Mecca, it, and it's like 140 feet across or something. It's also the world's highest clock. You know, they they had to be high because they they had to be high because uh, they wrote this book. No, they had to. But be this high is not the 420 podcast. <laughs> right. It's not that time. Do you often think about your relationship to time? I think about it all the time, from looking at my phone to looking at my watch to trying to understand why my Google Calendar owns my life. I think about time as a concept. Really? Because you were late today. I was the first one. I'm all always right. the first well, it's one. Well, it's this funny contradiction about time, because you say Google Calendar owns your life. Me too. I do feel enslaved to time, but at the same time, uh, I use timing timers and keeping track of time for my work and everything else so that I can relax so that I can have the time on the weekends you think to... that's true though I mean that sounds great what you're saying but I think we <laughs> if end I up didn't... being slaves to the time and worried about where we're supposed to be and who we're going to meet and whether they're going to be on time and uh, it's 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 really uh I'd say on balance I worry about time more than I forget about time that's you know it's sure. a great question about whether time as we know it has helped us progress or has actually 
set us back a little. When it comes to the history of time, we actually kind of have the Yoda of uh, timekeeping. He's a curator. Uh, he has helped bury clocks, invent them, and he's going to tell us all about time. David Rooney joins us in this very special history lesson. He's doing the teaching. We're doing the listening on the Accutron Show. Don't go away. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our Accutron DNA collection. Reimagined for a new generation, the Accutron DNA combines breakthrough technology, precise engineering, and modern aesthetics to achieve a new level of technical excellence. The Accutron DNA, the new face of time for those who blaze new trails. David Rooney has written a fascinating book called About Time, A History of Civilization in 12 Clocks. And he joins us from Greenwich, the, the, home, the home of GMT time. David, welcome to the Accutron Show, and thank you for being our guest today. Great to be here. Thanks. Well, I guess my first question is, the way you look at time in this book is not just through 12 clocks. It's almost like a movie or a novel. It's got everything. It's got suspense. It's got romance. It's got uh, uh, things, things blowing up, violence. Uh, how do you explain time to people when they say, oh, come on, it's just a clock? I mean, this was what was wonderful for me uh, to be doing the research for writing this book, which was, you know, I've been... I've been working in museums with horological collections for like 25 years. I've been kind of interested in the story of clocks and watches for a lot longer. But what I was trying to do with this book, which was very different, was, was not to kind of write a story about how clocks and watches work. I mean, there's plenty of amazing books that do that already, but I was interested in what they mean. So, so like why people have made them, why in many cases, why people have spent a lot of money an effort making these horological devices, um, and not you know around uh, across civilizations through history. This isn't a recent story, and it's not a Western story only. Um, and it was a way for me to kind of what I wanted to do was to zoom right out of the picture and not to focus on any particular technology, like you might think of what we what we might consider as clocks or watches. I wanted to think of any device had been made by humans with the purpose of tracking the passage of time. Right. So that might be a sundial, it might be a sandglass, um, a, a time-finding telescope, uh, whatever. And that really helped me look much more broadly and um, geographically and historically to sort of really understand what it is that we've been doing for thousands of years. You mentioned uh, devices that mark the passage of time this there's not a lot of calendars in this book, but there's a lot of clocks. What, what was the di distinction there? I mean, calendars, if you take my kind of broad uh, d definition of what a clock is, then calendars could be included. Okay. Um, of course they could. Um, so something like Stonehenge or... I mean, Stonehenge is an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, that's so far back in history that really understanding what the purpose of it was. Yeah, help is... us solve that one, David. If we can crack that <laughs> yeah. code, we can break a well, little news here on the It's a, I mean, it's a calendar. The Among other things, it's a calendar. Yeah. Right? But, but, but as you said, calendars are devices for tracking the passage of time, just as much as clocks are. Um, I mean, and there, and there are elements of calendars in the book when we consider some of the... Um, astronomical and astrological clocks, the huge clocks like the ones in um, Strasbourg or Prague. Um, or the Islamic like clocks, the, yeah. 
and the Islamic clocks as well, which considering these longer time cycles and the, and the patterns of the movements of the heavenly bodies. Um, so it kind of does come into the story, but I think certainly as we come up to the more recent past, there's something about devices that move, which, which act as kind of um, replicas of the moving planets and heavenly bodies. And the human really, body, because you say the beat of a clock is almost like the beat of, a, or the tick of a clock is almost like the beat of a heart. Well, maybe I'm being too romantic there, but I'm sure <laughs> that there is something in that. You know, you know, we talk, you know, we're interested in watches, right? And so there's something, we, many of us think there's something special about mechanical watches, which might be different from quartz watches or, or um, purely digital watches. There's something about heartbeats. There's something about the fact that those things are alive. The, that the life was alive. breathed into them by the, by the craftspeople who made them. That, that I think we've, as long as we've had um, mechanical watches and clocks, I think we've tapped into that. And I'm, maybe I'm being fanciful there. But well, I, you I have think it right is... there. It, in the temperance section, you talk about how they, you know, they, they really related the human, the mechanism of the human body where they went from hourglass to clock to symbolize death. Right. You know, that, that these things are the lifespan. Uh, and that a body should be, should be like a well-ordered clock. That it should be looked after, that it should be um, cared for and maintained. And if you do that, then it will run at the right speed, not too fast, not too slow, and it'll keep going. Yeah. And that was fascinating to me that the roots of those words, temperance, I had never thought of that before. I was like, temperance? That has tempest in it, basically. Is that are those a common He's root? never thought of temperance before. I, well, that's true. <laughs> None of us. Have. But is I mean, that a common hard, root? I mean, it was a hard value to sell even then. But um, yeah, the, root, the roots are very similar, temperantia and tempus. Um, and, and right back to the Roman period and further back, people were thinking about those two ideas together, the passage of time and like a, a, a temperate um, life as being going at the right speed, not too fast, not too slow. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about resistance, because time as a concept functions so long as we all agree that it functions for all of us. There must have been throughout all of these clocks, throughout our understanding of time, resistance to it. Absolutely. A really significant theme that, that kind of cut through all of the stories that I was writing about. I mean, a lot of this, a lot of the, a lot of the story is about power. It's about the exertion of power. It's about power structures. It's about order and control. So, and, a, and a lot of it, therefore, has to be about kind of a top-down idea of order that we're being kept in order by rulers or by military leaders or by the leaders of our faith and so on. But it would be fatalistic wouldn't it for us to submit to that always and so there's that sense of resistance that, co that comes through history where people have fought back against the order that people are seeking to impose on us the power that they're exerting over us and sometimes people have fought back against clocks clocks which are proxies for that and sometimes they fought back with clocks I mean I talk um I there's some incredible examples in history that I talk about, from um, suffragettes in Scotland to anarchists to um, people in India fighting against the British Raj in the 19th century, um, people in 
the American South fighting against enslavement, people in the, in the English North fighting against mill and factory owners, and how in all of those circumstances, clocks and time have been used in a kind of a, a top-down power structure, but people fight back. Yeah, they show up on one morning at a factory or in a country, and suddenly in the town square there's a giant clock, and you point out many times they pull a gun out and start shooting at it and destroying it. They're just they're just wigged out by this thing that's, like, watching over them. This, I mean, the, the, the example that I gave of, of India under British rule in the late 19th and early 20th century, astonishing story about how time was used to... Um, well, how, how kind of times and time scales were used to show who your allegiances were with. There was, there, was, there was a period of time in India where there were three times that you could choose to keep. Let's say you were in Bombay, Mumbai as it is today. You, you might have been a factory worker in Mumbai. And there'd be Bombay time, the time according to where you are. But then the British Raj sought to impose a standard time, which was actually Madras time, because there was a British controlled observatory in Madras. And then that was then followed by what was called Indian standard time, which is five and a half hours different from Greenwich, which is the time, which is the standard time now in India. And who you, and, and so there's a, there a tale where one morning, um, the factory owners in a Bombay textile factory changed to Indian standard time without telling the workers. And sure, when they arrived at work the next morning, thousands of people on the morning shift, uh, they started to pelt the clock tower <laughs> with stones because it stood in for this um, control. And depending on whose watch they were looking at, they were either late, early, or uh, they were supposed to come the next day. Uh, this is all fascinating. One of the many fascinating stories, time was kept in a bowl. Uh, the other thing that I found fascinating was when you go to the North Pole, you can walk around in a circle and be in all the world's time zones in one small lap up there. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the way time has been gerrymandered almost in these different time zones. You mentioned India, five and a half hours different in one place. I know some time zones do use the half hour. Newfoundland this is mind-boggling to me. Is on the half it hour. doesn't make any sense. But you make sense of it all, and we are going to have time for you right after this. We'll take a short break and be right back with David. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our legacy collection. Reviving some of the most memorable Accutron watches from the 60s and 70s, the legacy collection combines timeless design with the technical excellence of Swiss watchmaking, each limited to 600 individually numbered pieces. The Accutron Legacy Collection, inspired by the past, built for the future. Welcome back. We're talking to David Rooney about his new book, uh, About Time, A History of Civilization in 12 Clocks. And when we went away, we were talking about the times and, and how it's worked for and against us. And also, I want to ask you about time zones. But David uh, wants to take the other side of this and say, hey, come on, clocks have done some good things, haven't they? <laughs> what have we gained? In, in opposition to the resistance, what have we gained by keeping a clock on our wrist moving forward? There's always been tensions throughout this story. So it's never been a story about one side or the other. It's always complex. When you think now in the 21st century about what clocks in the broadest sense 
have enabled in the modern world. It's utterly astonishing. I mean, it's fair to say that the modern world only functions because of clocks. You can think of any aspect of modernity, what makes life modern, and clocks underpin it you know, in a really strong way, whether that's um, being able to move, to be able to travel long distances around the world, being able to communicate um, anywhere with anyone around the world, right? Infrastructure, electric power, uh, clean water, sewage being taken away, um, logistics, being able to buy products, food, goods from anywhere in the world, and for them to be able to arrive here at a reasonable cost. All of these things which go to make the modern world work because of clocks. I mean, there's a flip side to that, of course, which is what if those clocks stopped working uh, or got, you know, or got tampered with? And that's just, that's another story that, that I find very interesting. Back to the wristwatch. Th- this is the point, you know, what if, if, if you believe that, 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 that modern life is a good thing, if you believe in progress, then in a very real way, all the stories that I've been putting together in this book have led to the conclusion that we are where we are because of clocks. And many other things, of course, but there's something really significant about clocks for thousands of years. Is there a point where the sort of accuracy, I understand the accuracy is important, and you talk about that in the finance uh, section and in the atomic clock section, but in the atomic clock section in particular, um, I was fascinated to learn about the unbelievable precision that we, you know, we would lose half a second from the dawn of the universe. You know, why do we need clocks that are that accurate? Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, in many ways, we don't. In many, I mean, in, in many aspects of our life, um, imprecision is what we strive for. And, um, and, and, and so we all have multiple times in our lives, I think. And many of those are, as I say, imprecise. We want them to be because, you know, life's imprecise uh, and complex. And, but, and so there's a really good question. What, what, what clocks do we want in the world um, and watches? And, you know, make sure that we make those. I've been involved for a, a while now with um, a group of people in, based in San Francisco, the Long Now Foundation, who are thinking about how clocks can make us uh, think longer into the future um, to kind of extend our temporal horizon much further into the future so that we might make better decisions now. Um, so they've made a clock which can run for 10,000 years uh, if, if maintained and if cared for, a mechanical clock. I used to caretake the prototype, which is at the London Science Museum. So in some ways, people are making clocks which aren't super accurate. They aren't precise. Danny Hillis, who was the designer of the Long Now Clock, he'd worked on like supercomputer design in the 1980s, uh, some of the fastest computers ever made. And he said that he designed the Long Now Clock uh, which is the slowest computer that's ever been made, <laughs> to, atone, to atone for his sins in speeding the world up in the 1980s. But but the, but these super accurate clocks um, that have been made that that are in you know GPS satellites and and data centers and high frequency trading and all of that, which are which are a kind of nanosecond accuracy and precision, billionths of a second. Uh, of course, it's not about knowing the time of day that precisely. It's what they enable in other technologies. They enable SatNav to, to, to find your position to a smaller and finer 
uh, grain. Um, they enable um, you know, scientific research to be uh, stronger or better. Um, so I think there's a, I think there's a kind of a whole constellation of clocks at, the, at this end of the scale are these super accurate ones, but they're not the only clocks that we're making. And um, it's great to celebrate them all. You know, I was fascinated. I teased it at the at the top about the uh, the different time zones, and if even if we had a clock that everybody was on that was super accurate and they were all synchronized to one another, you got India or China or other other places where they're. How can they do a half hour? How can we be five and a half hours different from anything? Uh, China's China is on one time zone, isn't that correct? That's right. And it's five hours worth of time wide. Yeah. So how do they sync anything up? How do we? Well, they know probably more easily than we do. Why isn't there just one time for the whole world? <laughs> well, Why, because the time zone would be lunch like for some people and breakfast for, you know what yeah, I who mean? Who cares? Then you know, that, yeah. you know that noon for you or six for you or... Okay, but noon, but then five thirty. Uh, let's, let's hear what David. Let's hear what David. Where do you weigh in on this? We're confused. I mean, you are you are replaying the sorts of discussions that were being had in eighteen eighty four in Washington D.C. in a conference room at the International Meridian Conference that first set up the idea of um, standardized time zones for the world for a single. Uh, origin time, a prime meridian for the world, one line to measure all time and space from, and the idea of zones around the world that all reference back to that one line. And all of these arguments about should there be a universal time? I mean, that had been floated since the, like the, 90, uh, the 1860s and 70s. Sometimes it was called cosmic time, uh, often universal time. The idea that, come on, let's just, let's Let's flip our understanding of what time means. And as you say, instead of thinking 7 a.m. is breakfast time, then instead you learn what breakfast time means where you are. It's a different number. That's all it is. And the politics of all of that is what really, really interests me. I mean, it was a, it was a political conference, not a scientific one. It was diplomats and politicians. And the arguments is like, whose time is the, or whose time is the universal time? Where is that meridian? And it was chosen to be Greenwich. It was chosen to be like a 15-minute walk from where I'm sitting right now in Greenwich. Now, you can imagine at the height of the strength of the British Empire that a decision that Britain's time is going to be the time for the world, that everyone in the world is going to march to the beat of a clock just a few hundred yards over there. That looks like imperialism to some people. I mean, for instance, the French nation absolutely detested the decision <laughs> and refused to accept it. Um, kept Paris Mean Time for years afterwards. Only moved to Greenwich Mean Time in um, the early 20th century, but they wouldn't call it Greenwich Mean Time. They called it Paris Mean Time, retarded by nine minutes and 21 seconds. <laughs> And that was the legal definition of time in France until the 1970s. Well, they thought Greenwich time was mean. So they, they didn't feel like... Greenwich time is super mean. mean. They were pissed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
By the way, is it a 15-minute walk from you, uh, plus or minus two th or to three seconds, or is that uh, the? Hey, I'm on the nanosecond scale, huh? Do you do you go down there and sort of meditate on the line or anything? Do you have any kind of ritual around the around being on the line? I mean, um, I'm going to say yeah. I mean, I used to work there. I used to work at the Royal Observatory. I was the curator of timekeeping, so I was kind of responsible for like. For, it's a national museum, so I was like sharing the memory of this horological history, which um, you know the, the world has increasingly moved away from and become kind of more universal. Uh, and it is a, an amazing place to go and commune at. Really, um, it's in the middle of a beautiful park. But I think, I mean, the point you made about time zones and and how um, the idea in eighteen eighty four was that there'd be uh, twenty four neat one hour time zones around the world and they'd have neat straight lines dividing them but of course geography gets in the way because those neat lines don't match up with country boundaries so as soon as um, geography and geopolitics kicked in it was never going to be a project that worked and so there are numerous fractional time zones around the world there's India uh, which is a half hour zone there's Nepal which is a three quarter hour zone oh. Um, you've, you've said that um, China is five hours wide, but it's only a single zone, and that's Beijing time, which is quite far in the east. So if it's if you're in the west of China, you're getting up at you know really unusual hours of the day. Think about Australia. Australia has a fractional zone, but it's also not just divided uh, longitudinally. It also has different daylight saving time zones. So like. Uh, one of, you know, like south of the line, there'll be daylight saving time and north there won't be. So there's like five time zones in Australia. David, will you settle for once and for all that daylight savings time is stupid? <laughs> <laughs> and obviously politicized, as you mentioned earlier. Daylight saving time. I mean, the, the history of that is, a, I mean, the idea goes back originally to a British house builder who um, had a moral uh, urge to get people um, out of bed early in the morning because he <laughs> saw that people were wasting the daylight that God had given us and they were sleeping through the first hour of light. And, it's, and, and, his, and his way of solving this problem is to change the hands on the clocks and watches of a quarter of the population of Earth twice a year, <laughs> twice a year, which, which we still do. We still change the hands on every clock and watch twice a year because some guy in Kent in 1905 decided that it would be good for us. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. You, you've written this magnificent book about significant historical clocks. Do you have meaningful timepieces yourself? Do you have sentimental value affixed to something you'd like to share with us? That's, that's a really good question. I mean, because I've spent um, my career in museums, I've been working with some of the most remarkable collections of clocks and watches anywhere. So I've never been a collector myself because I could never compete with um, with the collections that I'm that I've been charged with looking mm -hmm. after. So I've only got a few um, like odds and ends around. But there's one clock um, which I keep thinking back to. It's actually in, in the next room. So, so my, my interest in and my connection with horology goes back to um, early childhood, because when I was eight years old, my parents um, decided to um, 
change career and set up a clock making and clock restoration business. As you do. <laughs> As you do. So it was a midlife career change. So they set up this business in the family home in Northeast England. And, um, and for the next, well, until I left home 10 years later to go to university, like I was a small part of the business. I'd go with them as they would be picking up clocks or putting them back and setting them up. And there, there were a couple of things that, that really kind of hit me and have stayed with me through my life. The first was that every clock or watch or timekeeper is important to somebody. Now, there are some, of course, which the world finds important, like the John Harrison Marine timekeepers that uh, changed the world of navigation and set the course of empires. Um, but what about those cheap clocks that you might have bought in the 1930s or 1940s? Um, the mass-produced clocks, which are of no historical significance. But what my parents taught me was they're significant to the people who own them. They've all got a story, and it's a story that's, that's powerful for those people. And the second thing is that really hit home. The clock that's in the other room, it's a, it's a 1940s Metamec, mass-produced, uh, battery-powered, balance wheel, um, kind of pre-quartz electric. Nice little thing. You get them for five bucks on eBay. And my father, when I was when I was eight, he went he went to um, to college to study clockmaking to set up the business. Um, as part of it, it he um, he picked this Metamet clock out of a dumpster. It, it, someone had just chucked it out because it had no value, and he rescued it and he restored it for me for a present for for his son. You know, he he, he restored the movement. He took the movement apart, even though it's cheap. You know, he, he repaired it. He lubricated it. He repaired the wooden case, he repaired the glass um, and gave it to me. And I was eight years old and I was given a clock that my father had brought back to life. And I've still got it. It's been with me ever since. I mean, that was um, 40 years ago. And it still ticks. I've had, it, I've had it repaired once. And that just reminds me, whenever I'm thinking, is this story big enough? It just reminds me that every story is big enough. I mean, $5 on eBay and priceless to you. Yeah. One of the biggest stories, you know, uh, in human history, the, the story of time. I, the one thing that kept coming back to me as I was reading the book was that what an agreement time ends up being between people. And it feels like we're in a time where there's so little agreement. Agreement is in such short supply uh, at the moment. Do you think time is the last thing we can all agree on? Can we all still agree on time? I'd like to say... I'd like to give a hopeful answer to that, but I would have to say that, that everything that I've found by looking at how political time is, um, that whenever you, whenever you think that time might be something universal that at least we can all agree on, we find we don't agree. I mean, we've just had the conversation about daylight saving time, right? And, and, and kind of the passions that that arouses are, are really strong. I know in the States, but also in, in the UK here, the idea of standards, standardized time you know the fact it's all Greenwich time in the UK um the fact you know it the, the politics of it is is so profound because we care so much about clocks and time mm. that I'm actually I'm, I'm sure that it probably brings more more difference and more dissent um but perhaps I'm just being pessimistic here 
<laughs> you know, uh, there's one great, since you're in Greenwich and we talked about that earlier, there's one great story about a family who actually went around selling time because they were able to uh, take the GMT time from where you are right now and go to London and say to people once a week, this is the actual time. And I guess they were they were actually synchronizing that clock, that watch or clock to whatever subscriber they went to visit. Tell us about that family, because I think that's fascinating. I mean, this was this was a story that really rams home how time is a commodity. Time's got value. You know, it's got a monetary value. People are prepared to pay a lot of money for it to this day. It was the year 1836 that uh, John Belleville, who was an astronomer at the Royal Observatory Greenwich, started carrying a pocket watch, uh, a pocket chronometer made by John Arnold uh, a few years earlier, uh, corrected to a tenth of a second to the time kept by the time-finding telescopes at the observatory in Greenwich, the master timekeeper for, for Britain, and then carried it around a subscriber round of London once a week, and you'd pay an annual subscription to get a weekly look at the watch and a certificate <laughs> to say that this watch is accurate to so many tenths of a second from Greenwich time at the observatory. And at the start, in 1836, he had like 200 subscribers across London. And they were across like um, uh, the, the merchants, uh, the people out in the docks, right. uh, the commercial centre, you know, businesses, but also eventually the homes of some individuals. He died in the 1850s, and the service was taken on first by his wife, Maria Belleville, and then their daughter, Ruth Belleville, with the same watch, carrying it around many of the same customers until the year 1940. So 104 years after John Belleville first started it, people were still paying. In, in the age of the wireless time signals and telegraph time signals, um, the speaking clock, the telephone clock was just around the corner and people were still paying for this early 19th century watch to arrive in her handbag. And you That's know what really point. interested me about the story was because <laughs> it wasn't just like an anachronism. People were paying good money because this was valuable. For a start, a tenth of a second accuracy was better than almost any other way you could get the time. It was better than telegraph times, better than radio time. Um, but also you trusted it because you'd seen the certificate, you knew the certificate was legitimate, and you'd had Ruth turn up at your shop or your factory every week for, for decades. <laughs> right. And you that's a that movie. I'm no, sorry. That's, that's a movie. Right? The lady who sold time. I, but, David, the lady who sold time. <laughs> now I can take my iPhone out and I can tell you the time, but I still wear a wristwatch every single day. Do you have thoughts on that? Do you think there's something above and beyond with regard to meaning for a watch. Absolutely, without a doubt. And this is nothing new. This is since the, since the start of watches. You could argue even since the start of clocks. Of course, they tell more than the time. Of course, they're expressions of, of, of um, our identities. I mean, even some of the earliest watches, the earliest clocks, did far more than tell you the time. They, they were multi-purpose devices like a, like a cell phone or, or a smartwatch are today that have all kinds of calendrical devices. They might have alarms on there, um, you know, all kinds of things. And, and we wear them, we own them, we care about them because they say something about us. 
I mean, it might just be in, in, in the early years, an expression of, you, of your wealth, certainly an expression of your taste, and an, ex, an expression of how you were connected with the sorts of people who could make these things when they were really very rare, that you, you had enough taste and position in society that you could have access to one of these complicated watches. So I see what we've got today. I mean, I'm exactly the same. Of course, I've got a cell phone. But of course, I also wear a watch every day. What's on your wrist? Yeah, what, what, <laughs> well, strangely enough, as I it think happened, we know, yeah, it's um, <laughs> oh, an and, and 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 one of the reasons, of course, I think that we're all interested in this is because it's connections with the past, as well as connections with people. I mean, the connections with the people who make them, who innovate, and think of new ways to do to solve these age-old problems. But also connections to the past. I mean, the original Akitron in the 1960s was a period of, of astonishing technical development. Um, and so what watches watches aren't timekeepers. I mean, that's almost like the least that they do. You're wearing an Akitron on your wrist right now. And when the Akitron originated in the 60s, it was a period of tremendous technological advancement. Can you talk a little bit about the significant achievements um, of the 60s? I mean, the 1960s was just astonishing. When you think, well, right, in two ways, I think. First, in terms of what happened during that decade, but also what had happened leading up to that decade. It was kind of ideas that were realized then, but it had a long gestation. So if you like, if you take like bookends for the 1960s, in 1960, let's say, for example, the Akitron, which came out very much a product of um, kind of the, the techno-scientific developments from the Second World War onwards, particularly ideas like the transistor. I mean, the, the introduction of the transistor in the late 40s, really revolutionized. I mean, of course, it revolutionized the world when you think about computing, consumer electronics, but of course, the watch and what um, Hetzel was doing, making the Accutron, was kind of riding on that um, enthusiasm. Interestingly, I think the tuning fork that he decided to go for as the as the time base had a long and noble history as as a frequency standard in science, um, in kind of physiology research, uh, in in radio research and engineering. And he put the two together to make something which, um, you know, we know that the quartz watch changed things 10 years later. But for those 10 years, this was an astonishing product of, of scientific um, advancement. It was the and Betamax and then VHS came along. You can argue which was better, obviously, uh, and the VHS displaced Beta, but the Beta was a, a superior product at the time. So, uh, and, and there are always so many reasons why one particular technology kind of um, sticks right. and, and others don't, and it's not always which is technically the best, absolutely. Take a look at 1969, um, the first flight of the first supersonic airliners, Concorde and Concordski, the first flight of the Boeing 747, the jumbo jet, the democratized mass flight, the first humans on the moon, right? So, I mean, all, those are stories which actually the Accutron played, in, played an interesting role in, but what... So, so that's my first point. Like, that's incredible. What Getting humans on the moon, getting um, kind of mass flight, getting supersonic flight for um, commercial flight was astonishing. But all of those things were also r riding on like 50 years before. I mean, if you think about the, 
1969, it was only 50 years since the first aircraft flew across the Atlantic. Yeah. <laughs> only 50 years. And we had supersonic airliners. We had the 747, which has only just gone out of, of use. We had humans on the moon just 50 years after the first flight across the Atlantic. And so the 60s was this flourishing of these ideas that have been building and building. Of course, the Second World War had this disruptive effect, um, in many ways a catalyzing effect on some of those technologies after the war. Um, but certainly for historians of technology and science, it's a decade that's worth a lot of attention. I like that you wear the Accurton and know a lot about it. <laughs> Taking it back a little further in history, uh, I was fascinated to read about the clock in uh, Chioggia in, in Italy. I think it's pronounced that way, um, which I think is the oldest still operating clock. Is that correct? It's As far as I know, it's the oldest surviving clock in the world. Okay. The, what was fascinating and, and to me was that, that it, was, it was sort of the symbol at the time of – this order being sort of brought back finally after this tremendous disorder of the plagues and this period of turmoil. And we're going through such a period of turmoil with our own sort of plague and things like this. If you could build a, a clock somewhere to sort of bring us out of, of disorder and into order, you know, do you have a dream clock you'd build? It's the oldest surviving clock in the world. There's none, There's one in Salisbury Cathedral from the same year. There's none known older than that. Um, and that clock, which was a public clock, interestingly, not a, not a church clock, it was on a public building in 1386, uh, still running in Kyoja, um, built at the end of this hellish period in that part of Italy. There was the Black Death pandemic, but there was also, they'd also emerged from a terrible war um, between rival states that had used Kyoja as kind of a battleground. You know, the, 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 the hell that they'd gone through uh, was um, terrible. And there are, of course, some parallels with what we're going through right now. And the idea of that clock, a really expensive clock being built at a time when they had no money. So the fact they spent money on a clock is really telling. Um, this sense of bringing back order after all of this disorder is absolutely what I think's happening right now, post-COVID, when we're not post-COVID, but when we are. Actually, I think all of the clocks, which, I mean, we've talked about how clocks kind of underpin everything in the modern world. Um, what With COVID, we've seen so much disruption of how things were, whether that's, you know, logistics or healthcare or whatever. Um, all of those clocks are going to be bringing back order as quickly as possible, um, and it's already happening. You know, um, now whether it's whether it's a good thing that how things used to be is how things will be again is a, is a matter for debate. Uh, but we can be sure, without doubt, that clocks are part of whatever emerges after this pandemic. Well, and speaking of that, and apropos of what Scott was saying about designing the next clock or having the perfect clock uh, that we could all agree on, you have been part of or know of uh, a clock that was buried, an atomic clock that's going to be dug up in several more centuries when maybe your book will be about 13 or 14 clocks instead of 12. Uh, tell us a little bit about that history as kind of a, a wrap-up for this episode and and. Who's going to dig it up and who's taking care of it in the meantime? Do we know it's going to be accurate when we pull it up? Give us a little history on the uh, on the atomic clock. 
I mean, this 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 was the final clock that I talked about in the book. And um, yes, it's an atomic clock, but it's not an atomic clock like we know them um, today, you know, in, in satellites or, or, or broadcast centers or whatever. This was a product of the atomic age in, like the Accutron, actually, a product of the 1950s um, being realized in the mid-1960s onwards. This clock, which was made in Japan by Seiko and Matsushita, um, is a plutonium clock. So it's a radioactive clock. It's, a, it's, it's kind of about like 10 inches high. It's a polished steel cylinder with a dial on the top. Um, diameter, probably about six inches diameter. It's got a single hand. And there's a pellet of plutonium oxide inside, which is steadily radiating helium nuclei into a bellows, a bellows that can expand. And as those helium nuclei uh, enter that chamber, the bellows are expanding very, very slowly because this is a clock which will run for 5,000 years. It'll take 5,000 years to get the hand round the dial. Each marking on the dial is the passing of another century. This clock was, was developed in the 1960s. There was quite a few kind of um, radioactive clocks being developed. One, the first in 1959, uh, actually probably not far from where you are in New York City, in Chase Manhattan Bank on Pine Street, got a radioactive clock, which I don't know, perhaps you can pop around and see if it's still there. But it was kind of this clock to show the stability of Chase Manhattan. It's going to be there for centuries to come. And then in the Osaka World Expo for 1970, they decided this would be the symbol of the future. They had this clock made by Seiko and Matsushita, 5,000 years, put it in a time capsule and buried it deep under um, a park in Osaka in Japan with strict instructions that it remained there for 5,000 years. And then it gets brought to the surface again, if there's a civilization that can do that, that can remember it, and it'll be kind of the, the biggest unboxing that you will ever <laughs> see. As this clock is brought out, and as the hand will have been ticking, ticking, ticking round to the final part, uh, position, and then the rest of this time capsule, which is kind of life in Japan in 1970. And what an, what a, what an expression of hope for the future. I mean, they had school kids writing um, kind of um, passages and poems to the people of the year 6970 to say, look, you know, here, here's who we are. Um, you know, we need to work hard to make sure that the world is left in a, in a state that's fit for you, for you people of 6970. And it was really this, this, this hands across the sea. Um, but this sea is the passage of five millennia. But it's there. It's underground in Osaka, and it's been there since 1971. And you know, by retelling this story, like 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 we're doing today, we're remembering, we're getting that folk memory, which is what all of these are about. This is about telling stories that pass down generations. Well, please, by all means, keep keep the Rooney family going, and maybe one of your great 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 grandsons or daughters can be there when that uh when that clock gets dug up as for that trip around the corner to chase manhattan we will do that when you are in new york together with you and we'll also go to times square hey look uh 
David, uh, the book is fascinating. Uh, we could talk about it for hours and hours by anyone's definition. It's called A History of Civilization in 12 Clocks, About Time by David Rooney. And he has been our timely guest here on the Accutron Show. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Accutron Show. To listen to all of our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. To learn more about the world of Accutron, follow us on Instagram at Accutron Watch and subscribe to our podcast. From New York City, until next time, Accutron Time.